0: Will you please turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk 3, you'll need a Bible to follow along. So these brothers have some, they're going to make their way to the back, get their attention. If you need a Bible, keep that Bible as our gift to you. Bring it back with you each Lord's day as we look at God's word together today, Habakkuk chapter 3. And today's message in Habakkuk is the last of eight in this short but powerful book. And then what comes next? Well, over the next nine Sundays, there are five of those nine that are either holidays or on which we have guest speakers. Next week, I'm going to start a new series that I'll tell you about in a bit. And two weeks from today is Easter. Three weeks from today, my family and I will not be here because our daughter Lainey is graduating from Eastern Michigan. And the pagans at Eastern Michigan hold their commencements on Sunday morning. And then two weeks after that is Mother's Day. And then on June the 2nd, three weeks after that, Pastor Matt, our associate pastor for about five years, or about seven years here actually, who's now pastoring in Jacksonville, Florida, he's going to be in town for Laney's and Clay's, wedding, and I've asked him to preach that day on June the 2nd, and then on June 16th, two weeks after that, is Father's Day. So the next nine weeks are very choppy. So it's hard to go through a book of a Bi- of the Bible and that kind of schedule, so instead I'm going to be doing a topical series in between those holidays and uh, those guest speakers on the world beyond our world called uh, Myths That Christians Believe." about the Holy Spirit, about angels, and about demons. So we're going to be looking at what the Bible says about all of those in that uh, topical series over the next several weeks, starting next Sunday. Today we conclude Habakkuk with Habakkuk chapter 3. Many of us have learned the Bible in bits and pieces, and we've never really put the whole story together. And the result of that is that we don't see the connection between the parts of the Bible and the whole. It's one reason that at CBC we offer two foundational classes on the Bible and theology. How to get the most out of your Bible and Master Plan for Life. Both of those are offered in our midweek community institute. I'll be leading Master Plan for Life again this coming, this coming fall. And if you've not taken those two classes, then I encourage you to do that not seeing the Bible's big picture not only means that we fail to understand the Bible itself, but it also means we end up with a skewed view of God himself. Because the Bible is designed to make him known to us. And If you only have bits and pieces, you don't get an accurate picture of who God is. So many people then see the Bible as just a series of woes and of, of judgments that are pronounced on people. And a long list of things that you can't do. Now, of course, the Bible does have such things. In fact, this book that we've been studying for these past seven weeks pronounces five woes on a nation called Babylon in chapter 2. And God warns of their impending doom after he uses them to judge another nation, Judah. So you do have that kind of judgment and you do have those kinds of woes in the Bible. And indeed, God's commandments are often things to avoid, things that you can't do. And all of those woes, all this fiery judgment, all of those prohibitions, they create an imbalanced picture that is not pretty if left alone. But it's not a pretty picture because, in fact, it's not the whole picture. When we read stories in the Bible, they must always be connected to the larger story. And then and only then can they be properly understood. As you see these judgments, friends, remember that they are in the context of God's faithful love for his people. We see this in many places throughout the Bible, including the first part of your Bible that we call the Old Testament, of which Habakkuk is a part. If we go back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, we see God calling a man named Abraham to be his servant and God making precious and profound promises to him. God said, I'm going to, I'm going to be your God, and I, your God, am going to make your name great. I'm going to make your seed multiply. I'm going to make your nation one of my making, and your home a land that I am going to give to you, Abraham. And this good God, who gave those good promises, sets out, in fact, to fulfill them. He later calls Moses to lead his people out of captivity in Egypt. And Moses commands the Pharaoh on God's behalf, let my people go. Notice God refers to them as my people. At Sinai, God formed them into the nation that he had promised to Abraham. And God said to Moses there, the Bible says he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Notice the tenderness here. Notice the fatherly care here. But then right after that, there is issued a warning. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. So indeed there are the... Warnings of judgment and the woes. But they're always in the context of God's fatherly care for his people. Sometimes we see only the judgment and not the compassion of God. Only the woes and not the blessings. But if you wanted to identify a theme in the Bible. One theme for the entire Bible. I'd recommend that it be this. God's relentless quest to make himself known. Through a people of his own. God's relentless quest to make himself known. Through a people of his very own. And you see that throughout scripture. God says this. To the Israelites. His people. I will walk among you and be your God. And you will be my people. Habakkuk lived 800 years after God's pronouncements. At Sinai with Moses. And after 800 years after the passage we see on the screen, but he knew about it because he references the Exodus extensively in chapter three, verses three through 15 that we saw just a couple of weeks ago. And this same theme continued into Habakkuk's day and after I'm going to quickly read for you some of what scripture says about this theme of I will be your God and you will be my my people. Through the prophet Jeremiah, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. Again, through Jeremiah, they will be my people and I will be their God. Through Ezekiel, they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel again, then the people of Israel will no longer stray from me, nor will they defile themselves anymore with all their sins. They will be my people. I will be their God, declares the sovereign Lord. Once more from Ezekiel, I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. And then you come into the New Testament the Bible says, we are the temple of the living God and God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Again, the author of Hebrews alludes to this. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And when you come to the end of human history in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. God's relentless quest to make himself known through a people of his very own. And it's because Habakkuk had this full view of God. Not a truncated, not a skewed view. It was because of that that in the midst of receiving scary news that we saw at the very beginning of this book in chapter 1, even in the midst of that, he could still rejoice. He was able to look beyond the circumstances to the good God of those circumstances. In the title of the series that we conclude today, he was able to go from fear to faith. We're going to see his conclusion, Habakkuk's conclusion in our message today. It's my hope that we're going to learn from his example and we'll bring his understanding of God to our own individual circumstances. Let's pray now and ask God to help us to do that. Father, here we are now. Our hearts quieted before you so that we can learn of you. And so, Lord, help us to do that we can't without your aid we need your holy spirit to illumine our minds to to as we look at the meaning of what you have said to then turn the light on as it were for the significance of that to us and so holy spirit we ask you to do that work do that work on our minds open our hearts so that we receive gladly what you say we align our lives accordingly so that we can indeed be those people of your very own who are making you further known. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I encourage you to take the outline out of your program that's inserted there. We have it there every week. You'll need that to, to follow along. And we'll get to that in just a bit. But as we conclude this three-chapter book of Habakkuk, let me just quickly remind you of what we have seen in those three chapters. The book of Habakkuk begins in chapter 1 in verses 2 through 4 with Habakkuk crying out to God and he's saying, to God, how long are you going to allow violence and injustice to go on unpunished? Habakkuk had seen that taking place in his own nation. He was righteously vexed by that and he called out to God, God, do something. And then in verse 6 of chapter 1, God says to Habakkuk, I'm going to do something. I'm going to bring the Babylonians. (laughs) And the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to have their way with the nation of Judah because of its disobedience. And then we find in the latter half of chapter 1, Habakkuk saying, "Uh, wait a minute, I didn't mean it. (laughs) Don't do that. You can't use those guys. Those guys are more wicked than we ever thought about being. You're going to embolden them by giving them more success in their treacherous ways. This is beyond you, God. This will this will harm your reputation beyond just harming us. Judge us in some other way or let's just put the whole thing off. And then in chapter 2, God gives a vision to Habakkuk. He gives a vision assuring him that God is going to judge the Babylonians. Yes, I'm going to use them as my instrument to judge my people, Judah, but I'm going to judge them for their wickedness because they willingly do what they do. They're in my hand, but they willingly carry out their sinful ways. And so he pronounces five woes in chapter 2 upon Babylon. And then we come to chapter 3, and there's been a change now in Habakkuk. One, he's reassured that this holy God to whom he had appealed at the end of chapter 1. This is not like you to use people like that. He now knows more about what God's going to do. And further, chapter 2 ends in chapter 2 and verse 20 this way. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And as a result of this vision of the true and living God, Habakkuk has changed. His perspective has changed. We come to chapter 3 now. And he lays out in song. He sings to God in poetic form. Praise to him for all that he has done in the past. In verses 3 through 15 that we saw two weeks ago, he alludes many times to the exodus where God with a mighty hand brought his people out of the land of Egypt. He's praising God for what he has done and he's looking in anticipation for what he's going to do. Sometime in the future. God has promised he's going to judge Judah, he's going to use Babylon to do it, and then he'll judge Babylon. That brings us to the final four verses of this book. And I say in your outline that we can have true joy in sorrow when we remember the character of God. Verse 16 of chapter 3. I heard... And my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. When we remember the character of God, we remember the full power that he has at his disposal and the pure holiness that he has that causes him to use that power in judgment against sin. When we remember that, it does what I say in the outline. It produces appropriate fear. The thought of God pouring out his wrath emotionally impacted Habakkuk so that his heart pounded and his lips quivered. Verse 16 says, he says, decay crept into my bones. That is, he was sickened by what he had heard and saw in the vision that God had given in chapter 2. As one writer said, Habakkuk's nervous system was completely unraveled by what he had, had learned. Yes, he sings praise to God, but it's praise to God in the midst of understanding the calamity that is yet to come. Now, some of you may be thinking, as we have in the outline, that remembering the character of God produces appropriate fear. You may be rightly thinking about a passage in your New Testament in 1 John chapter 4, and verse 18, that says, Perfect love casts out fear. That is perfect love, mature love, love that's in the context of the book of 1 John, love that's put into action as God requires, loving God and loving others. And when we love that way, and the more mature we come in, become in doing that, then it casts out fear of judgment from God. But when we sin in an ongoing and unrepentant way, as Judah, the nation Judah had done, we, we should indeed fear. And in the case of Habakkuk, he feared for them. Remembering the character of God produces appropriate fear. And, I say in the outline, it produces contented patience. Verse 16 again. Yet, despite that reaction that I had to learning what it is that God is going to do, says Habakkuk, yet... I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation, that is Babylon, who will be invading us. He's talking about his patient expectation that God would bring about all that he said he would on Babylon. As one preacher said, friends, the Lord who is in his holy temple is the sovereign Lord. All things march to the drumbeat of his will. The ultimate question for us is this, will we willingly bend our knee to his will? Habakkuk said, I'll wait patiently for the accomplishment of his plan. Habakkuk understood that God's plan upon which he would wait patiently would bring great sorrow and it would bring great pain and still he would be content as God accomplished God's own purposes. Friends, let's be reminded of this. That God overrules our circumstances. Thanks be to God. God uses difficulty and He uses pain and He uses sorrow for ultimate good. And the Bible is replete with stories of God doing that very thing. Perhaps one of the most well known is that of Joseph. You remember the treachery of Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery. They thought they would never see him again. But in God's providence, He overrules Hardship, He overrules even the sin of people and gives favor to his people ultimately. And you come to the end of that episode that goes from chapter 37 to chapter 50 of the book of Genesis, 14 chapters worth. You come to Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20 and famously as Joseph is reacquainted with his brothers and they're amazed that he's still alive and they're amazed that he's risen to prominence in Egypt and they're also scared that he's now going to kill them. He says, you meant it for evil, but God intended it for good. We see this in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died a cruel death. And those who did it, like the Babylonians, are guilty of what they did at their sinful hands. And God did and will judge, but God used that for the ultimate good of our salvation. That's why the Bible can truly say famously in Romans 8 28 we know that in all things God works for the good of those uh, works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. God works for the good of his people. And so in our sorrow, it is not just it's not trite, but it's actually true that God is not doing something to his people, he is always doing something for his people. People, We can have true joy and sorrow when we remember the character of God and, I say in your outline, when we recognize what really matters. If we're going to recognize what really matters, then we're going to have to recognize what I say next, that matter does not ultimately matter. You know, when I say matter, I mean material. When we, when we say that someone who is into their money and into their wealth and into their possessions, when we say that person is materialistic, what we're saying is they're into matter. <laughs> they're into material. They're into stuff. And what Habakkuk understood in light of who God is... He understood what really matters, and that means that matter, material things, which are by their very nature temporary, do not then ultimately matter. I read an article this week about the possible near-term future of our nation's economy. And this chief economist at RBC Global Asset Management said this, Alarm bells rang for many investors when the U.S. Treasury yield curve recently inverted for the first time in roughly a decade. On March 22nd, just a few weeks ago, the yield on the 10-year Treasury bond fell slightly below that of the three-month bill. Yield curve inversions are rare occurrences in which short-term interest rates exceed longer-term rates. For several decades, these events have served as a reliable predictor of a coming U.S. recession. That's what he says two weeks ago. And he's saying this thing called a yield curve. And he relates it to long-term bonds and short-term treasury bills, which I don't claim to understand. But the bottom line is, he says, this has generally been a predictor of a recession coming. The author of the article goes on to say that it's possible this yield curve does not predict a recession this time as it has in the past, so it's not certain, but he says that if it is, then we're looking at about a year before a recession begins. And I, of all people, do not know what any of it means, and I have little knowledge of such matters and even less interest. But I have read for some time now from those who purport to know And it was one motivation for me to do a series on Habakkuk at this time. It's my hope it will prepare us for what may come in the relatively near future. Even if it does come, it will likely bear little resemblance to what Habakkuk anticipated may happen in his day. A time when, according to verse 17, look at verse 17. The fig tree does not bud. And there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. (laughs) Now, all of the nouns in verse 17 describe the basis of the economy of the nation of Judah. That's Habakkuk's nation. It was an agricultural economy. And what we have in verse 17 is a description of what's going to happen after Babylon invades Judah. It's a description of the total collapse of the nation's economic system. And we really can't even begin to imagine such a situation. Now some of you say, no, wait a minute. I remember the end of 2008 and then for a couple of years after that, we had what economists call the worst recession since the Great Depression. I remember that. That was just 10 years ago. Nothing like what Habakkuk's describing. In the early 80s, right after I had graduated from high school, a very severe recession. Those of us who went through that at that time in our lives think it was worse than 10 years ago. But then there was the Great Depression. And in 1929, our nation experienced an adjustment in our economy. As one has pointed out, we tend to think of the stock market crash that took place in that year as just that, a crash of the whole economic system. But the truth is, even that was not a total collapse. It was an adjustment. Yes, it led to years of depression. Times were hard, but they were not impossible. And yet, in those hard but not impossible times, many felt that the only solution in their situation was to take their own life. But in these verses, we have a description of the total collapse of the economy. In the words of one preacher, everything in which people trust was suddenly swept away. They're left without hope, without help, without any prospect of happiness, happiness as defined by our culture. We need to understand, friends, that sooner or later, all that this world offers us, all in which people place their trust, will someday fail. And I think that we intuitively know that. And so people live with a low-level fear from day to day. Fear the stock market. Fear inflation rates. Fear thieves and vandals. Fear nature itself, because we know that in a moment, all that we have can be swept away. And our preoccupation with the temporary things of this world can never produce joy. It can only breed an inappropriate fear for believers. Inner peace does not come from outward prosperity. And so I say in your outline, we need to recognize what really matters. And that means recognizing that matter does not ultimately matter, but also... That the master is infinitely more important than matter. And that's what Habakkuk recognized. Verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Now I've said at the top of your outline, we can have joy in sorrow when we do these things. When we remember the character of God. When we recognize what really matters. We'll see a third point in a bit. But it says we can have joy in sorrow. And that may seem contradictory. Joy and sorrow. Aren't they incompatible? If you're sorrowful, you can't be joyful at the same time, right? Well, in fact, they're not mutually exclusive. But we think they are because we misdefine joy and we misunderstand how our emotions work verse 18, when Habakkuk talks about having joy and expressing joy, rejoicing in the Lord and being joyful. In the Bible, joy is not giddiness. It doesn't mean we're always upbeat. It doesn't mean we're happy if by happy we mean it fluctuates with what happens. Which is what most of us mean when we talk about happiness. I'm feeling good if what's happening is good, at least from my perspective. That's a wrong way to understand both joy and happiness, which in Scripture are often used synonymously, interchangeably. For example, in Psalm 32, rejoice in the Lord and be happy, you who are godly. Notice, be joyful and be happy. Joy is based on the perspective we have of our circumstances doesn't mean we're giddy. It doesn't mean that we're thrilled about what's going on at any particular time in our lives. But it's based on the perspective we have of what's going on, even when other emotions are more powerful at the moment. So we get this joy thing wrong. You hear guys like me quote Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and I'll say it again, rejoice, and you go. You know, they're just things that news I got hit with this week, Pastor. Where I'm not happy about it. I mean, if you get the news, heaven forbid, but you, you get the news or I get the news that someone close to us has suddenly passed away. Unexpectedly, they weren't ill, something happened, car accident, something like that. What emotion is going to overtake you at that moment? Grief is going to overtake any of us at that news. And yet, as we're able to collect ourselves and as believers, we're able to think about God on his throne. We have a perspective of those circumstances that yields this joy that I'm going to define for you in a moment. We can be sad, we can be sorrowful and still have what joy is. Namely, as I've told you in the past, an abiding sense of delight that God is at work. So even in the midst of that news that comes crashing home, and when there's this overpowering emotion, at least for the time being, I still can have the right perspective that God is at work, and that gives me an abiding sense of delight in Him. This mixed emotion that we are to experience, that is right for us to experience as believers, is why we rightly sang last week of the crucifixion of our Lord, a line that said, with joyful grief I lift my head. Joyful grief. We're joyful when we think of what the cross accomplished for us. But we grieve when we think of our sin that required the cross and the punishment that it meant for the Lord Jesus. Joy and a proper understanding of happiness is based on the reality of God's work and our relationship to that work. So it requires a relationship with God. And that's why Psalm 32 famously says in verse 1, blessed is the one, and that word blessed is a common word for happy. Happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Why? Because we look to the relationship we have with this God who is at work, even in the midst of the difficulties that inevitably come with life in a fallen world. Notice the focus that produces this abiding sense of delight, even in the midst of sorrow, this abiding sense of delight that is joy. It's focused on God. In verse 18, Habakkuk says, I will rejoice in the Lord, all caps. If you were with us several weeks ago, when we saw that in chapter 1, I reminded you that that's the name of God, Yahweh, the personal name of God, That signifies his personal relationship with his people. I will rejoice in the Lord, Yahweh, and I will be joyful in God. Notice my Savior, my Deliverer, my Rescuer, my Deliverer, Rescuer from sin and from the adverse circumstances in the best of timing that is God's. It is God who is the one who will save me, most importantly, from my sin. But he will be the one who will also save me from my circumstances in his best of timing. We can have true joy and sorrow when we remember the character of God, when we recognize what really matters, and lastly, when we rely on God's strength. Verse 19, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Here we have the beautiful picture of a deer climbing to the mountain heights, picking its way along to the very pinnacle and walking the ridge of the mountaintops. It's a picture of grace and of confidence. It's a picture of this animal being sure-footed and strong. Habakkuk uses this imagery to teach us that it's only in the strength that God alone will give that we can rise above the sorrow and the despair that we find in this world and walk among the mountain peaks. Now, Several weeks ago, I told you of a great preacher of the Word, now with the Lord, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who did a series in the book of Habakkuk, and his messages are contained in a little book, And in that book, he offered four steps in dealing with problems in our lives. I gave those to you several weeks ago. I'd like to quickly give those to you again for those who are not here. He said we must first of all stop and think. Just in the midst of what's going on, stop, take a pause, and think. Just stop allowing the emotion to control. Hit the pause button. So that you can think. And secondly, restate biblical principles. So having stopped now to think, restate what you know to be true about God, about God's work in the world, about God's work in your life. Restate biblical principles. And then thirdly, apply those principles to the problem. You've restated biblical principles about God, that God is sovereign and God is all powerful and God is is all good to his people and he does all things for the good of his people. You've restated things like that. So now apply that to this problem. Is there any problem too great for God? Obviously, no. Is there any situation that he, his strength cannot bring you through? The answer is no. Is there anything that he allows into your life that's not ultimately for good? The answer to that is No. Apply those basic principles to the problem. And then, fourthly, leave with God the things you cannot understand. I mean, in the midst of what's going on, there'll be plenty of times where I don't understand how this is going to work out for good. Ultimately, I know it will. I can give many testimonies of how it has in my own life. You can do the same. But in the midst of this particular thing, as big as it is, as complicated as it is, how is it going to work out for good in my life? I may not know that. And when I don't understand what God is doing, I need to trust his heart. And he's given me infinite reasons to do so. Some of you know the name Ron Hamilton. Ron Hamilton is a musician. He composed a number of songs. And... He may be known to many of you parents better as Patch the Pirate (laughs) because he switched careers at a point in his life to become Patch the Pirate, and he wrote Patch the Pirate songs. And our girls grew up with some of those, and some of you did. Your kids did as well. But the reason Ron Hamilton had a patch and became Patch the Pirate It's because he contracted a disease that affected one of his eyes, and his eye had to be surgically removed. And so he wasn't just playing patch. He actually had a patch. And he had a patch because his eye had been removed. And when he got that diagnosis, in the aftermath of that, he wrote these lyrics. God never moves without purpose or plan." When trying his servant or molding a man, give thanks to the Lord. Though your testing seems long, in darkness he giveth a song. Now I can see, he writes. Double entendre. Now I can see, even though I've lost an eye. That testing comes from above. God strengthens his children and he purges in love. My father knows best and I trust in his care through purging more fruit I can bear. Oh, rejoice in the Lord. He makes no mistake. He knoweth the end of each path that I take. And when I am tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold. That's true for Ron Hamilton. That's true for you. That's true for me. Your take-home truth is this. Christians can have joyful contentment in any and every situation when our focus is on God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for allowing us these weeks To look at the words of your servant, Habakkuk, thank you for preserving these for us. Father, as the all-knowing and sovereign God, you know exactly what we need and you have written your word accordingly. And so we thank you that we read in Habakkuk's circumstances of difficulties. Lord, we have these difficulties living in a fallen world. And, Lord, we become initially afraid. But then, Lord, we have to do what Habakkuk did. And thank you for reminding us of that, to turn our attention to who you are and your character, to remember what it is that really matters, to rely upon your strength and not ours alone. And when we do that, you indeed do your marvelous work in and through us. So, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we would take these things to heart, that we would indeed apply these biblical principles to our circumstances. And Lord, may you produce the gold in us that you desire to make. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.